Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 62. I have some of the verses we will be studying on the insert, so you can have that handy, but please turn in your copy of the Scriptures. Uh, That's page 620 or 621 in your pew Bible, or have your electronic version, so you can see all the verses. We will cover all of these verses. We're coming to the to the end of this study of Isaiah. And in these last chapters, we have the, the picture of the future coming of Christ and his ultimate and final coming pictured in these last chapters. Um, the message of Isaiah is one that took 50 years for him to deliver in real lifetime. And the book of Isaiah is the chronicle of that by God's Spirit. And it tells the story of the gospel. It tells the sin of man. It tells the Savior who would come, who we would have to trust in or need to trust in to be right with God, and the sure coming of that same Savior, but then in glory as the King um, who would bring judgment. Um, We believe that he'll return to judge the living and the dead. But we don't talk about judgment so much, um, but that's what he comes to do this final time, this time that we await. As sure as he came the first time, he will come another time. And you know, uh, good thing we don't have one of those old school signs for the church that you, you know, put those quippy statements on there. Can you imagine the name of the sermon, though, just, you know, as you're driving by, the wrath of Christ. Um, it's an interesting dilemma we face in this feel-good culture that doesn't want to deal with hard truth. Um, even Christians avoid that sometimes. And when you think of the wrath of Christ, um, the wrath of God, um, three times more the wrath of God is spoken of than the love of God in Scripture. Uh, now, the love of God is powerful, and it's, it's the, the story of the Bible is God's redemption. Um, but he's saving us from the wrath of God uh, that will come upon us if we're not in Christ. And so you can understand why so much is mentioned about the wrath of God. And we come to a passage now where the people of God needed to hear uh, a message of encouragement because of the trial they were about to face. They're going to go into exile, taken away from their homeland, taken uh, property from them, their identity. It would be very difficult. So to give this picture of the gospel again in the book of Isaiah would encourage them through the rough times. It would also be uh, on display what would happen when God did, did come in his full judgment. Those who were not in Messiah uh, would be meeting an awful fate, and that is pictured here in graphic detail before us in the text. Um, just one thing I want to ask of you in preparation, as we prepare uh, to read and then hear this passage preached, I would ask that you would prayerfully consider people in your lives uh, who don't know Christ. Um, people that you know you should share the gospel with. It's not for your pastor to do, it's not for your parents to do, or someone who's more spiritually astute or knows the Bible better. God has placed people in your life that will receive the full wrath of Christ if they don't turn to him. Now, it is not a person's responsibility or it's not their doing that makes someone else go to hell, but it is our responsibility to share the message of the gospel that we have been given. And if we read this text and are not compelled to share the way of escape with someone, we must question whether we have understood what comes if we are not in Christ. So prayerfully consider, as we consider this text, who you 
can bring the message of the good news that was given to you so that you came to believe. Who can you bring that to? Here now as I read God's holy word, starting at verse 11 of chapter 62, keep your Bibles open as we will see the full chapter 62 in a moment. Starting at verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, this vision is both sweet and severe. It is both a relief and a terror. On the one hand, we are grateful and moved to praise you for your favor and your salvation through Christ, a salvation we do not deserve, but you gave to us. On the other hand, We are terrified for those who reject you. We know your justice is real. You have every right to it. We have no complaint against it. But also that your righteousness must be upheld. And we know and love people who stand in the way of your coming. And in that way, no one can stand. I pray through the preaching of your word that your people would be strengthened and those who are your enemies would repent and believe. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up listening uh, to reports about being on guard for a nuclear strike. Uh, We lived near Niagara Niagara Falls, and so when I was a a child in the 80s, we would have at least once a month air raid drills where you go to the middle of the hall in our elementary school and you would get down uh, and huddle up in a ball and cover any open skin that you could so that if a nuke hit, um, that the the flash would not burn the skin off of your body. It sounds so brutal. And for for a long time, we went through these drills, convinced that the Russians were at some point going to start World War III and we would be nuked. I remember thinking after a while, this is going to happen. I mean, who believes this? I mean, it's all this talk and all this, and then it heightened. I remember watching uh, the, the height of the Cold War during my upbringing, and finally, it seemed to come to an end. Never mind, there are something like 20,000 nuclear warheads all over the world still, you know, guarded by some guy who's only eaten one meal a day. Uh, It still seems like it should be a scary place, but we don't really think it'll ever come. It's just too big. It won't come. Nothing like that. It's interesting. You know, our kids are growing up in a time where there's far more firepower. 
And in some sense, there seems to be more threat, at least considering the people who are controlling things. And right now in North Korea, they have supposedly developed a, a bomb. They just, they just detonated a hydrogen bomb that was, had a 100 kiloton yield. Uh, that's seven times stronger than the atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima in 1945. Seven times stronger. I mean, it's a nation that people cannot, don't have food to eat, and their government making a 100 kiloton hydrogen bomb. That they say they now have a missile that can hit anywhere in the United States. Yet we're, no one's really too freaked out here. I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. We don't take it too seriously. Well, at the same time, a, a week ago, the Russians, not to be outdone, said that they have one as well called Satan 2. It's funny if it weren't so awful. In this weapon, it has a yield of 40 megatons. 40 megatons. That is 2,000 times as powerful as the atomic bomb dropped at Hiroshima. 2,000 times. A bomb that destroyed a city is 2,000 times bigger it could easily destroy some countries. We live in a day where there is potentially a constant threat of annihilation, but honestly, if you look at the news, that's not the headlines. Not at all. I just, we're in denial a bit about how serious things could be. That's just the way we live. We just decided to live that way. Well, there is something coming that is coming. There's no question it will come. And how many think about it? The great day of the Lord himself, when he comes in full vengeance, with complete righteousness, total judgment, and only those who are in Christ can stand. For all else others, it will be the most awful thing you could ever possibly imagine. In fact, the picture we have here is a picture. It's not literal because there's no way to put into words how awful that visitation will be for those who are under the wrath of God because their righteousness cannot stand. Only those who are in Christ, in the Messiah, can stand in that day. And as sure as he came the first time, he will come again. He has never bluffed on any promise he's ever made. He will come again. And if you're not alive when he comes again, when we die, we'll meet him right away. And I don't think the time takes too long, as far as perception goes, from the time we die, from the time he comes again. And outside of Christ, it will all feel as awful. And that's the recurring message of the Scriptures Christ's return will manifest, ultimately, in the end, those who are his and those who are his enemies, and no one will be found neutral. There's no one in the middle. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either in Christ and his beloved covenant children, or you are his enemies. There are no other divisions. We have many divisions uh, that we we note in our world, but there really are only, there is only one division, in Christ and out of Christ, and when he comes it will be made perfectly clear who is on what side. The passage is meant to encourage those who are undergoing terrible difficulty and harm at the hands of God's enemies, the Babylonians. It's not to say that the Israelites were all righteous in themselves, but there were people who did trust in God's redemption, who were believers, and they too would have to undergo this difficulty in Babylon. And so God wants to paint them for them a future picture that will be altogether different from their experience, that their spiritual uh, progeny would be able to experience, that would give them joy under their duress, make them know something of their eternal tastes in glory. And that's what we find in chapter 62. 
Look there with me as we start at verse 1. This is a promise to the covenant people about what will come even under their duress. It's still in context back from the 59th chapter of the anointed messenger, that is Christ, the Messiah, to come. The one who is the fulfillment of all God's covenantal plans. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent on the cross. He's the one who has will be the perfect second Adam and has been the perfect second Adam from our perspective. He's the one who will fulfill God's covenant through Abraham and make a great people, bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the anointed messenger. And now it says in verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is a picture of what God wills to do through his anointed messenger. He says Zion and Jerusalem. These are terms that capture the whole of God's people. He commonly uses small cities to show whole peoples. And in this case, Jerusalem, Zion, talking about his covenant people, the people he is, uh, through Abraham, blessed. And he will not stop. He will continue and radiate his light through them is it says, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The individual believer in Judah who was going into exile was not feeling like a bright light. But he was saying, I will work this in such a way through Messiah that you, my people, will be a bright light of righteousness. And that will be the thing he uses to develop and shine until he comes again. That's what he's doing now. Over time, building his people, growing them, shining his light through them until Christ comes again. Verse 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. His plan for his people would be to accent his glory by his salvation of them through Messiah. It's not their obedience that makes them shiny and bright. It's the obedience of the Messiah in their stead, and he will, through him, make them a bright light to call people to his people. And that's the full extent of what he promised Abraham realized through Christ, happening through us, and at culmination when Christ comes again, with no no question. His people will enjoy the fruits of his work. Verse 4, you shall no more be termed forsaken. Now, all of these terms would be terms that they felt. They certainly felt forsaken, being taken by these Babylonian captors. They felt waste, their, their land had become a wasteland, all of it, the stuff pillaged from it. They would feel that God did not delight in them, that God had divorced them as such. But verse 4 says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. This picture of marriage used earlier in the book, as we have seen, is is a picture of beautiful harmony that, that manifests something supernatural. And that's true of marriage. I mean, marriage is one of those things that accents the divine. For two fallen sinners to be able to have harmony, to be one flesh, is a picture of God's supernatural work. And it really manifests something. It's not, boy, how good are those two. It's what supernatural work is happening that makes two people able to be harmonious. 
And he uses this marriage metaphor to show what the people of God would look like. Um, There's a lot of fighting going on among the people of God at this time, no doubt. It's always a challenge. But God will work in his people to give them such unity, such selflessness with each other, that it brings us closer, and he'll he'll show a, a harmony that displays the light that he is working to shine. And he uses this metaphor uh, also to show that they won't look to the other nations anymore. They won't try to get help from the other nations. They'll find within the body of Christ that which is needed to accent the glory of their covenant God. In fact, that's what is intended in verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. A picture of harmony on display among the people of God will make us a shining light. And it's in exact uh, harmony with what Jesus prays in John 17 when he asks the Lord to bring unity to his people so that through that unity, that harmony that God's people have, have, that people in the world will know that Jesus was sent. It's that supernatural unity and harmony that is given. And as he does this, He will set watch for the day when Christ will return. That's verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. The scholars disagree about who in particular this is. These angels and the... Well, watchmen are often connected with the leaders of the church. Those who are supposed to be watching out for the church. Watchmen is a good description of the shepherds of the church. So people who are among God's people, who have a special duty to call our attention to these truths. In a sense, I'm acting as a watchman. I know a lot of people may think, if they're not believers, they think what I'm saying is ridiculous. What is he all getting worried about? The Christian's talking about judgment. Talking about, but my job is to, if you will, not worry about what the culture thinks of it, how, how well have they done and things. I'm supposed to rise above it. We're supposed to rise above it with the scripture and say, what does it say? And declare it. And he who has ears to hear will hear. She who has ears to hear will hear. And that's what a watchman does. Uh, people have to listen and agree and, and say the watchman has credibility or not. And so we come with the word. That's what has credibility. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night, and they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Uh, there will be the need for watchmen until Christ comes again and establishes it as the great pastor of the church himself, the high priest of the church himself, Jesus. Until that time, there's a ceaseless watch, a ceaseless prayer, ceaseless concern about the reality that he'll come again, and there are many who do not know him. And so we declare, you must know him. You must be in him. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. This is strong, covenantal, binding language. He's sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. He's not just said it with his mouth. He's backing it up with his strong right arm, his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. So the picture of Judah taken by Babylon, that will not be descriptive of God's people ultimately. Ultimately, you will not be pillaged by the world any longer. That is not my plan for my people and and the brightness that I want to show forth from them. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. And that's what... That is what happened in those days. People came into Judah, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they took the milk and they took the honey for themselves. And God says it's not going to happen to God's people. Again, figuratively here. He's not going to let the world ransack the church any longer. 
In fact, we'll see the fate of the world outside of the church, outside of Christ in a moment. Foreigners will not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. The the people of God will joyfully serve their God without it being pillaged, and there will be a, a purity of relationship that is finally realized when Christ comes again. When the servant does his redemptive work, as we saw in the middle chapters of chapter 52, 53, he then goes from his finished work on the cross to the anointed messenger and secures the blessings of God for his people. And here's the the invite, verse 10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. This is a picture of him coming for final redemption. We've been redeemed by Christ's finished work. Final redemption, the realization of it all, comes when he comes again. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. That's an important feature. He comes to judge the living and the dead. If you're in him, you're judged righteous because of him. If you're not in him, you're judged his enemy. Verse 12, and they shall be called the holy people. Again, all terms not used of Judah at that moment. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. All terms they long to hear, would not hear in Babylon, and will not hear in fullness until he returns. Remember, Christ's return will manifest those who are his and those who are his enemies. No one will be found neutral. And the text shifts now to the first verse of chapter 63, where there is a very stark declaration of what happens for those who are not in God's covenant of grace. Yes, the Messiah, the anointed messenger, is the one who crushes the serpent's head on the cross. He is the one who is the perfect second Adam in our stead. He is the one to fulfill God's covenant through Abraham, to be the faithful one that no Israelite ever was, to take all the promises of Abraham upon himself and then share those with those who are in him. But he is also the one who will come again to judge the nations. Verse 1 of chapter 63. Imagine the watchmen are looking out. They see the blessings of God being poured upon their people. Their city is now no longer forsaken. There's a sense in which they have arrived as God's people. They're, accept, they're receiving all of his benefits. And look at verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Do you see what the picture is? The watchmen are looking and they see someone coming. And the person's coming from Edom and Basra. Those, just like Jerusalem and Zion, are pictures of the people of God. Edom and Basra, Edom especially, is usually an enemy nation-state or city-state of God in the whole Old Testament. Uh, Connected to Esau and so forth. But Edom and Basra are descriptive or they're representative of the enemies of God. Those who are opposed to God. And this person, this writer, as we find out later in Revelation coming in the watchmen see and they see who is this and what's that red stuff all over their garments who is this who comes from Edom 
And notice what else is said in verse 1. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now, this isn't a normal army scene where you would see a huge army advancing, and you wouldn't pinpoint any one person. The strength of the army is demonstrated in the numbers, in, in the motion as they come forward. But in this case, it's one who comes in splendid apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And the words come from this one, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, he's coming to the people of God who have already been set up with blessing. Well, but wait a minute, he's coming to save. He has saved them from their enemies, and they don't even know it. He's coming from having defeated the enemies. You can't have salvation until your enemies are defeated. And that's what Christ does. He saves us, but he defeats his and our enemies. It's a vivid picture to me because why am I not one of his enemies? I should be one of his enemies. You should too. And the only reason why you're not is because he has made you alive together with Christ. And he comes from defeating his enemies. That's the picture. Very clear. He was splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The question comes, but why is your apparel red? That's what it says next, verse 2. And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I think believers forget what it cost for our salvation. What we should have got, but we didn't get. And we're shocked uh, afresh when we think of the bloodiness of this picture. The seriousness of sin is what is on display. Why is your apparel red? Now, we know this is talking about Christ for several reasons. One reason is earlier in the text, in our study, there was the mention of a particular apparel that the anointed messenger was wearing. Back in chapter 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So that's the garb he is wearing. And then you come to chapter 63, verse 1. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? This is that same person, the anointed messenger. And we know all the more it's Christ because when we come to the picture in Revelation, in a couple places, but in Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. In the name by which he is called the Word of God. I used to always think that blood was his blood somehow, symbolic of his washing. That's not what it is. That's the blood from his judgment on our enemies. That's the picture. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood in the name by which he is called the Word of God. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is his name and is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Back to Isaiah 63, verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. That is the fate for the enemies of God. There is no neutral here. The winepress. This is a picture lost on us a bit, but if you could imagine 
a small enclosure, say three feet high. Think of a raised garden type thing, just, but only five feet by five feet, maybe three feet high. And there are slots around the bottom of those stones. It's filled with grapes. Then people get inside of that enclosure and they start to stomp on the grapes. That's the way they stomped to get the juice out of the grapes to make wine. And as they stomped, the juice would run out, it would be collected, and wine would be made. But don't underestimate the picture that would have been painted. You would go into this uh, with your robe or clothes rolled up to where your feet would be and legs would be bare. There's usually a bar over top that you would hang on to, and you would stomp down on the grapes. And this would take, this could take a long time, it could take an hour or more, depending on how much is in there, until all the juice is stomped out. And you hold on to the bar so that you don't sink down in to all that juice as it runs out in all the the leftovers from the grapes that have been crushed. And you could not escape stains all over you when you got out of this. Your clothes would be, everybody would know what, what you were doing. You were pressing wine. You're in the wine press. This picture is used frequently to show the judgment of God, that the enemies of God are the grapes that are put down in that enclosure, and Christ himself stomps on them. That's the picture. In Revelation 14, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Matthew Henry says that Messiah declares that he had been treading the winepress of the wrath of God by his own power. Without any human help, he had crushed his obstinate opposers for the day of vengeance was determined on being the appointed season for rescuing his church. At the time he comes again, he will at the same time judge. He comes to judge the living and the dead. The winepress into which they are cast is the wrath of God, and Christ is the treader of it. Verse 4, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Do you see they're both there? He comes for final redemption, but he will also receive final vengeance. And here's the difference between you and I and God. He has perfect righteousness that must be, ba- that is balanced by his justice. And when he is affronted, he must, in his righteousness, he must confront with his justice. And he can do this because his anger is never sinful. It's always perfectly right. There's no complaint we can make against God for him judging sin. Because he's the one who is sinned against. God alone has pure, righteous anger. J.I. Packer, in his seminal book, Knowing God, wrote, God's wrath in the the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble, not like human anger so often is. Instead, it is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Verse 6, I trampled down the people in my wrath, I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. Hear what Matthew Henry says very closely, brothers and sisters. He captures this perfectly. Once he, Christ, once he appeared on earth in apparent weakness to pour out his precious blood as an atonement for our sins. But he will, in due time, appear in the greatness of his strength. The vintage ripens apace, quickly. The day of vengeance, fixed and determined on, approaches quickly, apace, he says. 
Let sinners seek to be reconciled to their righteous judge, ere he brings down their strength to the earth. Our reaction to this should not be, I don't want this God who does this thing. Please don't let that be your reaction. Because this is God. In the gospel is God saves you from God through Christ. That's the gospel. And it says through Paul in 2 Thessalonians, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Yes, this is a heavy passage. I asked you at the beginning to bring to your mind someone that you should share the gospel with. This isn't a guilt trip. If you don't share the gospel with someone, they're going to go to hell. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Scripture teaches. But if you listen to this and say you love someone that you will not share the good news with, you either don't believe what you're reading or you don't really love them. That's, that's for sure. And you don't need your pastor to do it. You don't need a missionary to do it. You don't need to know the Bible better than you know it right now. You just, what you know right now is enough to just share in love with someone who is standing in the way of the wrath of God, and no one can stand on that day. In the opening verses, we see the favor of God to those, for the, towards those who are in the Messiah. The final verses, we see the wrath of Messiah against those who are his enemies. When we allow ourselves to ponder the weight of his wrath... His mercy becomes all the more comforting and glorious. My discomfort with this message, maybe more personally than to preach it, I know what my job is to preach it, but personally, just like you, there's two things. It terrifies me for those I love who don't know him, but it also humbles me because there is no good reason I should not be trod down by God's judgment. And I feel guilty a little bit knowing I, there's nothing, I'm not righteous. How, it's hard to even preach this as though there's some reason I should be saved from this wrath to come, or any of us should be. And that can paralyze you if you think about it long enough, because I feel guilty for that in one human sense. How could this be? But then I open the Word of God, and I hear what the Apostle Paul says, and it, it brings it all to exactly the place it needs to be to compel us to action. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and I was. We were in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's me. Why should I not? I'm preaching a message as though I'm holier than them. I'm not. Among whom also we once lived with the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's us. How could we be saved? And listen to this description that Paul gives. And we were by nature children of what? Wrath. Just wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God. 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, by grace you have been saved. How does this deepen your understanding and thankfulness for what he has done for you in Christ? Once we ponder the impending judgment of God towards those who do not believe, we surely feel burdened for those in our lives who do not know his mercy. Who are those people in your life? How does a refreshed remembrance of his wrath spur you to share the gospel with them? How might you communicate both his wrath and his mercy in your presentation? Finally, John the Baptist, who is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, he had the job of going just before Jesus and preparing the way. That's what his role was. And so he did that with great faithfulness, baptizing people with the baptism of repentance, that they would recognize they were sinners and that they needed the Messiah that the Old Testament talked about. That's the primary audience of John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he baptizes him, not for the remission of sins, but to inaugurate his earthly ministry. So now Jesus' kingdom has come and it's developing and it's growing and it's beginning. And so the disciples of John shift towards Jesus and some are sitting with him at some point just before he is killed. He is executed, John the Baptist. And they say to him, Master, everybody's following him now. And he's saying, that's what should happen. I have to decrease. He has to increase. And then the words of John the Baptist I want to leave in your ears as he speaks to his disciples about Christ. He says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things to his hand. All things to his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who does not, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Christ's return will manifest those who are his and those who are his enemies. No one will be found neutral. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our, our thanks for the work of Christ grows deeper as we consider how our sin deserves your righteous wrath. We again have no argument with your righteousness. There is no argument we can make. We know we are guilty. We confess deep concern for those who we love and are, that are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We know that Christ will come again and their fate terrifies us. We know that you are just and right to punish sin and sinners. As the psalmist said, you are a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. We know what you said through Paul, that your wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Lord, we are asking for your salvation, the salvation you have poured out on us by your grace to be poured out on those we know and love. Now, brothers and sisters, take a moment with your heads bowed just to pray for somebody that you know needs Christ. Take a moment and pray for those people in your lives. For you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Please pour your grace upon us 
and upon all those that we come in contact with, O Lord. Pray this through Christ. Amen. Let's respond by singing. These hymns have been designed to, or meant to, focus your attention on the coming of Christ, our need to be ready, our need to be in Him. Um, And the last hymn is, is similar in this regard. So let's turn as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to 156 and stand. We'll sing verse 1 and verse 2 of, O Lord, how shall I meet you?